This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done collaboration for the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. King Rao, one of the protagonists from Mohini Vara's novel, The Immortal King Rao, is like many of the tech founders we idolize today. King comes from humble beginnings, born into a Dalit family in a coconut grove in India, moves to the U.S., and launches a company that ends up dominating the world. But Wahini's novel is also the story of King's daughter, Athena, living in a world created by her father's company, a world of social credit, a hothouse earth, and shareholder government. The immortal King Rao presents a techno-dystopia that may be recognizable for us today. But it's more than just a warning about the future. Wahini's novel weaves together scenes from the past and the near future to tell a story about caste in India and the growth of our modern-day tech sector. Wahini Vara has worked as an editor at The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, and The Atlantic, and as a journalist for these publications and others, including The Wall Street Journal, where she began her career. She is a graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop, and her fiction has appeared in Tin House and McSweeney's, and has been honored by the Rona Jaffe Foundation, the O. Henry Prize, and the Canada Council for the Arts. Her essay about grieving her sister's death, Ghosts, published in The Believer and adapted by This American Life, will be anthologized in The Best American Essays 2022. She's secretary for Paraplus, a mentorship collective serving writers of color, and a mentor for the Lighthouse Writers Workshops book project. Today, while he and I talk about the immortal King Rao, how the experience of her family's Dalit heritage motivated her to write the book, and what companies, perhaps, inspired the techno-dystopia scene in her novel. So... Well, Heaney, thank you so much for coming on the Asian Review of Books podcast. You know, I, I thought it might be good to start by just talking about um, the Immortal King Rao's, you know, its plot, its narrative, its characters. You do an interesting thing in the book where you've kind of split the book into two, I guess, in- interwoven narratives, interwoven halves um, from, you know, different genres. You know, one is more of a family story, a, a tracing a family's history kind of in the in the past and then a science fiction side of it um but i wonder if you might start to kind of explain what these two different narratives are and why you chose to structure your book in this way yes and thank you for having me too by the way um the book starts with so just to tell listeners what the book is about the book starts um with uh, a narrator named Athena and she has been imprisoned and she's suspected of somehow being involved in the death of her father. And her father is King Rao, the sort of titular character of the book. Um, She's in prison and she's essentially telling the whole story of his life and her life 
sort of as a as a way to kind of exonerate herself and clear her name um, and to accomplish some other things too that you learn about later in the book. Um, but her father, King Rao, was born on a small coconut grove in the south of India in the 1950s into a Dalit family. And then he's a, a very precocious kid and ends up moving to the U.S. in the 1970s for graduate school and um, starts ends up starting a company with uh, the woman who will later become his wife. Her name is Margie, Margie Norman, later Margie Rao. And this company grows and grows and grows and later becomes the biggest company, not only the biggest company in the world, but a sort of like world ruling company. Um, King Rao engineers this sort of new transition to a new world owner order in which companies uh, rule the world rather than nations um, and citizens have become shareholders and everything, much of how society is organized is determined by an algorithm. And that's the world into which Athena is born. Um, and so you asked um, how uh, this this idea of sort of like two different storylines came about. And I actually didn't really think of it as being, um, I now understand that it is now that the book is out and people are talking about it that way. But I didn't think about it as being like two different, very different stories with two different genres. I um, The way it emerged was that I was writing, um, I, I was on a, I was on a, train trip with my dad and he had this idea he was like teasing me about not working on a novel I was only working on short stories at the time I was in graduate school and he was like joking about how nobody reads stories anymore people only read novels so I was like all right dad give me an idea and my dad said why don't you write about the family coconut grove you know the place where I I I grew up my dad grew up um and, you know, left to, to move out West when I was in my twenties. And I'd heard stories about this place, like from my dad, from other family members. And it was like, there was a sort of interesting, dramatic family story there. And I, it occurred to me that like, there, there was a novel there somewhere. And I had also just been working as a tech reporter at the wall street journal. Um, and this was at like exactly at the time that like Facebook had just been founded and YouTube was founded and Google was going public. So it was this really interesting time in the tech industry. And I had been meeting people like and writing about people like Mark Zuckerberg and Larry Ellison and Bill Gates. And so I came up with this idea for a character who's born on a coconut grove in the south of India into a Dalit family in the 1950s and then moves to the U.S. in the 70s and starts a tech company. Uh, the problem with that was that I had never lived on my family coconut grove. I'd gone back and visited Um I, I'm female, not male. You know, I am Dalit through my dad, but had not grown up in India, sort of like under the caste system that was oppressive to Dalit people. And so I didn't have firsthand experience. I, I've never started a tech company. I wasn't, you know, a man in Silicon Valley in the 1970s. So there are all these places where like, I didn't have the firsthand experience to feel like I could credibly write from like a first person perspective, for example. And at the time, I, my husband and I were watching that Battlestar Galactica reboot from the mid 2000s, where there are these characters called Cylons that can like read minds can kind of like download people's consciousnesses. And I was like, well, what if I could have a character like that, like some consciousness that can tell the story of King Rao, but doesn't have to try to pretend to be King Rao, like would just have all these stories, but not be that character. And that's how I eventually came up with this character of Athena, King Rao's daughter, who can access the internet with her mind and can access King Rao's consciousness with her mind. 
and that's how she's able to tell the story in the book. But it emerged in this really organic way. And then I just started putting it on the page. And it was only years later, like when we sold the book and, you know, my publisher was figuring out how to position it, that these ideas about like genre came into the conversation. But that wasn't ever part of it early on. I mean, that's 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 funny because I like how you said this, this kind of structure kind of grew organically and that it kind of. I mean, and, 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 and it is kind of one whole narrative. I mean, as you read the book, you do see how they link together, how they intertwine. Um, it's, I think it seems like it's, it's, it's the settings and what the settings imply about the genre, maybe that's leading to these, um, these views that, that, that is kind of two kind of parallel narratives, but let's kind of maybe talk about each part of the book separately then, um, you know, and, and let's talk about kind of the, the, the family story first. Um, or the, or the bit of the book about about King Rao growing up in this coconut grove, um, you know, what were sort of some, maybe some of the the images, um, ideas that you wanted to convey in writing this part of the book? Um, what was the, kind of the story about what India was like? Um, did you want to convey? So my dad, who I mentioned earlier, grew up in a Dalit family, and I should maybe define that term for people who aren't familiar with it. Um, it's 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 a term that refers to people who are sort of outside of the hierarchical and oppressive caste structure, caste system in India. Um, a term that's sometimes used and was traditionally used is um, untouchable, right? To to negatively brand people as um, who 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 sit outside of this caste system. Um, so my dad comes from that community and um, grew up in India at a time when there was a lot of really interesting social change that was allowing um, for sort of like more upward mobility than had previously been possible for Dalit people in India. And then at the same time was sort of like um, surfacing systemic injustices that had kind of like been buried or not talked about or like, you know, people who are Dalit, who were Dalit, talked about it and were aware of it plenty, but like the majority dominant culture, um, I shouldn't call it the majority culture, the dominant culture um, didn't allow those voices to be broadly heard, right? So it's similar to, I think, um, a lot of what was happening with Black Americans over the course of the 20th century in the US, right? Where like, there there was some opportunity for upward mobility. And then at the same time, Um, there were these, like, there there was, first of all, a kind of pushback against that, a backlash against that, um, and a kind of new surfacing of problems that existed for a long time. So that was, like, the landscape that existed when my dad was coming of age, and that's the landscape that exists when this fictional character I've created, King Rao, is growing up in India. Um, And so I wanted to show all that on the page. Um, His family is a family of coconut farmers, like my dad's family, who for generations had been kind of tenant farmers on this land that was owned by a Brahmin family. But, you know, a a generation or so before King King is born, his family takes ownership of that coconut grove. They're able to um, acquire that coconut grove. And so now it's a family business where they actually have capital, they have land. Um, And that changes a lot about, um, about how the family operates, like both in positive ways and in detrimental ways. Um, And and I was interested in that in itself, right? Like I I find that to be a fascinating story, fascinating story, but I was also interested in it in the context of sort of like the evolution of global capitalism, right? So like 
a lot has changed in how capitalism operates in the world since around the 1940s, 1950s. And so I wanted that to sort of like be the starting point for a story that then, you know, moves through time, including into the future and sort of like shows a straight line, shows the link between what happened on that coconut grove in the 1950s and like where we might be in the 2050s. I wonder if you might actually get into that a bit more. Um, Because now that you mentioned it, now thinking back to my reading of the book, you're right. I mean, there is this, um, the coconut grove becomes more like a business with all the upsides and downsides that, that, that implies people that run it think more like businessmen. It kind of leads to some changing of the, of the family relationships within the grove. Um, and now, as you mentioned that, I do see how uh, all of these things kind of, as you say, work together to talk about the development of capitalism, both at the global and the local level, kind of over these decades. So I wonder if you might kind of yeah. actually get into that theme a bit more. Yeah, I mean, I, the I, you know, we, we were talking earlier about how people talk have been sort of describing this book as sort of in some ways being two different stories. And I wonder if that may be partly because, I mean, one of the thing, things I was trying to do in the book was show what global technological capitalism has done to human relationships, right? So on the one hand, we think of technology as being something that facilitates communication and the book sort of like presses on that idea, right? For example, by having technologies that might allow somebody to read another person's mind, to access their consciousness. On the other hand, the scenes in the novel with the most sort of like intimate familial connection are the scenes at the sort of earliest point at the book, right? Where King Rao is in this family, he's surrounded by family members. Like they're all sort of like, their lives are so integrally connected to one another in a really beautiful way, right? Like it's like an individual doesn't exist without the context of his family in that world. And then on the other end of the spectrum, um, you have King's daughter living a hundred years later who is desperate to connect with people. She really wants to find human connection, both on a sort of in a traditional way, right? Like by connecting to individuals she's near and um, by using technology to do so. And in fact, she feels that technology might be the sort of ultimate form of communion with another human being. Um, But like reading those sections of the book, or for me at least writing those sections of the book, like she is in many ways like a very isolated person and someone who's very out of touch with how to connect with other people. And so the novel is trying to kind of like use these different settings, I think, to engage with those ideas. Um, so I, I want to kind of go back to something you mentioned, which is the fact that um, many of the characters in your book are are Dalit um, or of Dalit heritage. Um, and you also mentioned kind of how the caste system was changing um, during the decades that 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 your book is set. You know, I think why is it important in your view that that you've put these Dalit characters, um, let's say, in, kind of front and center as as the protagonists of of the story you've written? So there are a lot of layers for me for that question. Mm-hmm. The the simplest way to answer that question is to say the idea from the for the novel came from my dad who grew up as a Dalit person in, you know, in the 1950s on a coconut grove in Andhra Pradesh in India. And so I wanted to write a novel set in a similar place, like with a similar sort of cast of characters to the people I'm familiar with from my family. And so of course 
those characters had to be Dalit, right? Because for my family, for anybody, right? Like you're sort of, your identity as a person is inextricable from your from your so- social context, right? So like these characters had to be Dalit for that reason. And that was the starting point. Like I just knew that they had to be Dalit because that was the, that, that was the, that was sort of like the constraint I set for myself from the beginning. But there are other interesting ways to answer that question. Um, one of which is to say that this book, um, in being a book about um, about capitalism, is also just like a book about how humans have invented systems since we first became human, right? To kind of organize the world. And then those systems have in- invariably been systems that um, that are also systems of oppression and systems of control. And so caste then, in that sense, is like is one of these systems that we've created. Caste is an invention of humans, right? Just like race is a construct that humans created. Um, and so caste in that sense becomes like not a metaphor because it's a very real thing. It's a very, you know, very affects the lives of the people in the book in a very significant, real, intimate way. But it's also like a lens through which this, um, this sort of like human um, predisposition, this human um, habit can be viewed. So I want to maybe flip over to talk about the, 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 the parts of the book set in the, in the future. Um, now, you know, uh, as you're reading the book, one might think of some parallels to real world companies when you talk about coconut and the, uh, and the products it makes its approach to, to business. Um, I wonder kind of what were some of your influences in developing the, uh, idea of coconut in, in, in the immortal King Rao? So like I said, when I graduated from college, it was 2004 and I had gone to Stanford and I graduated college and my first job was as a tech reporter at the Wall Street Journal. And I was in New York briefly. And then I was in the San Francisco Bureau and my job, the thing I'd been hired to do was to cover Oracle um, run by Larry Ellison, one of the biggest software companies in the world, started in the 1970s. And so to do that job, to cover that beat, I was reading a lot about the development of tech companies in the 1970s and just like what the atmosphere was like. I was reading biographies of Larry Ellison, but also of people like Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and reading, you know, oral histories of that time. Um, And so I was very steeped in that. And then the other thing that was happening at that time was that the Wall Street Journal didn't have anyone covering Facebook. And I was the youngest person in the office and like somebody who was on Facebook, which at the time as you might remember, was something that young people used, you know, um, like like TikTok now or something. And so I ended up kind of by default being the Facebook reporter as well. And so I was meeting Mark Zuckerberg and writing stories about him as well. And um, so became very fascinated by these characters and like the world they lived in um, and very just knowledgeable, I guess, about the history of these companies, the super interesting history of these companies. Um, I don't know about you, for, but for me, when I read like alternate histories, I feel like I feel dissatisfied if that alternate history is like so different from the real thing that happened in the world that it feels like it couldn't have possibly happened or like it's not contending with the actual world we live in. And so it was sort of intentional that in figuring out what coconut might have been like when it started in the 1970s that I like really drew heavily on the backstories of companies like Oracle and Apple and Microsoft. I think like all three of those companies' histories are in there in some way. Um, but I think like 
you know, the, the backstory of somebody like, like Mark Zuckerberg is also in there, even though he started his company years later, you know, like there's a kind of DNA, I think, to a company founder that has persisted throughout time. And so I, I was really drawing on that. Um, another thing I'll say, though, is that I started this book in 2008. And I started with this idea that Athena, she wasn't Athena yet, she was just some consciousness, I didn't know what it was. But it, there was this technology that allowed it allowed for, um, for, for minds to connect to the internet. And it was only years later that Elon Musk started his company Neuralink that essentially is trying to do the same thing. And other startup companies, some, some of which are further along, but just lower profile started doing the same thing. And so in some ways, like things that I thought of as just, you know, arising from my imagination, imagination, like being inventions of my own ended up happening in real time as I was writing the book also. And in a way that was a problem because I was trying to write this dystopian future that's taking place in 2050 or something. Um, But in another way, it was helpful because, you know, maybe in part because I'm a journalist too, I was able to like read these companies' white papers and like their academic, you know, academic journal articles um, written about these kinds of technologies and like, watch YouTube videos and try to understand like how these technologies were actually are actually being conceived so that I could then sort of like put use that in the book itself um, as I'm trying to explain how these technologies could possibly exist. And, you know, this this gets at something I kind of realized when I was reading your book and, and your book isn't the only one that that does this is kind of a, a a growing trend that I've that I've seen in lots of, let's say, techno dystopian science fiction recently. Um, but it feels like kind of the the things we're highlighting when we when we look at a dystopian future um, is changing. I mean, you you look at kind of the the techno dystopias of like the 80s and 90s, you know, your Blade Runners and such. It's very like neon lights, smog, a lot of Japanese kanji, um, obviously reflecting the hangups of that time. But now as you look at kind of when you look at what people are drawing upon for techno dystopias today, it's climate change it's rounded edges and sterile whites of apple it's you know social media and big data um you know i wonder kind of what what are your views potentially on kind of what are the things what are the you you can call them hang-ups that we have today that that we're now projecting on our techno dystopias that are different from i guess the hang-ups of 20 years ago when people were writing their cyberpunk stories yeah i mean it's such an interesting question my one theory I have, I don't know if this is accurate or what you think of it, but one theory I have is that back then, like in the 70s, 80s, especially, um, globalization wasn't yet as far along as it is now. And so there was this idea that anything that took place would be like, we'd see the sort of like, like the glamour of it, as well as the grime and grittiness of it sort of all in the same place, right? Um Whereas now it's the case that because of globalization, like everything grimy and gritty and dirty and unpleasant and poverty stricken and hungry um, about the world we've created is like, it's all in these pockets that like, you know, the elite don't have to see. And I'm counting myself as somebody who lives in the United States, right. Um, In, uh, in a, you know, like actually pretty relatively economically diverse, but getting less diverse and less, less accessible town in Colorado. Um, I count myself as being sort of like among that, that world elite, like that global elite. Um, 
you know, so, so I think in, and this is just a wild guess, but I think in books or projects that are set in something like the U S like we can imagine a future where that becomes more and more the case. Like everything that privileged people see is the sort of like the glossy, the white, the rounded edges. Um, because, because like the actual grime of it, um, the dark side of it is relegated to like these, these pockets elsewhere in the world that, um, that, that we don't see being here in the U S and I'm using by we, I'm referring to people in places like the U S or in Europe. You know, there's, there's a big conversation I think in, well, and not just in writing, but I think in, in let's say culture in general about, about representation, about making sure that, um, let's say non-white voices, voice people of color, those stories and stories featuring um, characters of those backgrounds are kind of put forward more. Um, I wonder if you had any thoughts on this question of representation in culture, in writing, in literature. Yes, very much so. Um, I think about it a lot. I'm I'm the secretary for a collective of writers called the Paraplus Collective um, here in the U.S. that um, it's a group of writers and we mentor emerging writers of color who are sort of earlier in their careers than we are. And the reason this collective exists is that we recognize that there has historically been underrepresentation and a lack of representation altogether in the industry. Um, so I, you know, I, I don't know that I have anything to say about that fact beyond the, that it's a fact and it does seem to be changing now in the U S publishing industry. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's changing slowly or rather it's changing relatively quickly, but there's just a lot of change that needs to happen to, to, to bring things back to, you know, to, 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 to par, um, in terms of the, the industry itself, the books that are being published representing what the world actually looks like. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, uh, we, we look to art, we look to books, um, to understand how the world works. And if, the majority of books being published are published um, from the perspective of, a, of the dominant culture here in the U.S. That's a sort of like white heteronormative dominant culture. Then, you know, historians who are looking at our works 2000 years from now, if we exist, humans exist 2000 years from now to understand what the world is was like then are going to get a really skewed view of what the world was. Um, so it, it's crucially important, I think. And um and I'm glad that the industry seems to be moving in a better direction finally. So I'd, I'd like to maybe end our conversation by bringing in something that's happening right now, um, especially because the because the characters in your book have doll heritage, you have doll heritage. Um, you know, there's this debate happening in the tech industry right now um, about about casteism. Um, you know, I think the the argument is that as the U.S. hires more people from India brings in more people from South Asia as engineers, as programmers. Some of those biases are being brought over um, into U.S. tech companies. Um, and then, of course, there's this huge internal debate within tech companies about how to, well, first, whether it exists, how to handle that, whether handling that is somehow um, anti-Indian, et cetera. I just want to maybe close by kind of asking your thoughts on this question um, and this debate that's happening in the tech sector right now. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think this is something that um, caste activists in India have predicted for a long time, you know, that caste is so entrenched in India that as the Indian diaspora grows and spreads, casteism 
will will migrate as well. And so it's happening. You know, um, there have been high profile cases like um, the activist Ten Morrison-Dararajan and being invited to Google the the, the anti casteism activist. Um, and Maurice and Dorada being invited to Google to give a talk and then uninvited after some, um, some people at Google complained um, saying that she was too inflammatory. Her views were too inflammatory. Um, it's absurd. It's ridiculous. Um, it's like, um, it's, I, I think there's, there's really no significant difference between that. And for example, an anti-racism activist who is black in the U S being disinvited from a talk at Google because white people felt offended. Um, and so I think, I think because of the dominant culture in the U S is white culture, I think, um, it can be a little difficult to understand how caste operates. Um, and to, you know, I think there are worries, you know, at companies about being flat footed or misunderstanding the question, the, the issue and inflaming things more, but it really, to me, it, it's a simple thing. You know, casteism exists just like racism exists. There is growing awareness of it. And I think because there are Dalit people working at technology companies, this issue is rightly getting more attention now um, than it has in the past. It also, the problem probably exists more now than it did in the past for that same reason. Um, and it needs it needs to be contended with. Um, and I'm glad there are people in the industry who are contending with it. And I'm disappointed that there are others in the industry who are pushing back against it. All right. I think that's a great place to enter an interview with uh, Wahini Vara, author of The King, The Immortal King Rao. Wahini, I actually have a couple final questions for you before we properly wrap, which is uh, where can people find your work and what's next for you? Those are great, great questions. Um, so my book, again, is The Immortal King Rao, as you said, and it can be bought, found wherever you buy books. Um, in If you're in the U.S., you can get it on bookshop.org or your local independent bookstore or Amazon. Um, the book is also out in India and in the U.K. Um, so you can, you can find it pretty much anywhere. It's published by Norton. And Norton is also publishing my next book, which is a collection of stories called This Is Salvaged, which comes out in 2023. So that's what's next for me. Well, I definitely look forward to reading that when it comes out. Um, so you can find me, Nicholas Gordon, uh, on Twitter at Nick R.I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. Um, and the New Books Network has so many other author interviews at thenewbooksnetwork.com. The ARB podcast is on all favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for a conversation with Gish Jen, author of Thank You, Mr. Nixon. But before then, thank you so much, Wahini, for joining me today. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. <laughs>